peace to you. Let us pray. O Lord, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Amen. Last weekend, I was watching the NFL pregame on Fox, and the host, James Brown, had a two-minute monologue that kind of surprised me. It seemed rather strange because you're used to just hearing only about football and the games that are coming up. And at the end, right before the commercial break, they pause and they shift to this shot of James Brown giving a two-minute monologue. He takes on the subject of anti-Semitism and hate. He talks about how it's been in the news and it's involved some rather prominent celebrities and athletes lately, a hatred for the Jews or a discrediting of history and suffering and persecution. And at the end he says, hate is a disease. It is a virus that spreads and kills. And I have to say he's right. And in fact, he didn't get that idea from NFL football field, but it's been around in the Bible since the beginning of time. If an NFL commentator can stand up for two minutes and give a monologue on hate and also on truth and love, then how much more crucial is it for the church to be able to stand up and give its monologue? for the gospel of Jesus Christ to lead us into a place today where we are not called to rid ourselves of all hate, but to humbly accept it and in response to bless the person in return. This is so strange that not even James Brown could quite understand or get there on a national broadcast. It's so strange to think of that we aren't prepared for it. A humble hope that stands out in this world of hatred like a breath of fresh air. The undeniable goodness of Jesus that is working in us and through us so that when people see you who don't know Jesus, they discover something in you that helps them to know Jesus. We'll look at Peter's message today in three parts, beginning with conflict in the church, and then conflict in the world against the church, and then finally conflict within yourselves. What drives you to take on each day? To get up in the morning, to get out of bed, to go into the day when you know you're probably going to face something today, and if not today, tomorrow, and if not tomorrow, in the next month, that's going to hit you the wrong way. What drives you to compete or excel at a high level? When you look at people who are able to compete or excel in athletics, for instance, on a baseball field, what is it that drives those little kids to grow up to be competitive the rest of their lives? Well, it can be something good, or it can be something bad. In fact, you can see it on baseball fields with parents and coaches screaming at kids who are just trying to hit a ball off a tee, who just want to run around the bases, whether they're even following the rules or not. 
But if we're not careful, that idea of competition can seep into our kids too, who can grow up to have this thing in their minds and hearts of it's me against you. And I need to prove that I'm better. The text comes from chapter 3 that we read earlier, where Peter says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. He lists five qualities here of a Christian, humble, hope-filled church. These five things to us seem like maybe they're not even possible. And I would say to you, they're not possible unless you prepare and unless you practice them. Two weeks ago, the Vikings, who I don't bring up in sermons very often because there's usually not many good things to say about them, but as long as they're seven and one, I'll bring them up for a moment because it might be the last time for a while. And two weeks ago, they lost their tight end to injury and they had to pick up a new tight end. The trade deadline was on Tuesday. So that Tuesday, they picked up TJ Hawkinson, which is a tight end for the Detroit Lions, a conference rival. They picked up this tight end and he's pretty good. So he steps off the plane that night, Tuesday, and he has four days to be ready to step into a starting role on an NFL team on Sunday and play. They said that he got up before practice and came out running plays, and he'd stay after practice to run more. And it happens that the backup practice quarterback was an old teammate from his in Detroit. So they'd get out, practice the plays before, practice the plays at the end. And even Saturday night, the night before the game, when they're in uh, a visiting city, He's still running through the plays with this backup quarterback until finally the practice quarterback says, TJ, you've got it. Comes out on Sunday, catches every one of his nine passes for something like 90 yards. Now, how did he get ready for that game? What was it that allowed him on Sunday to come out and know every play and be ready to respond because I'll tell you, in an NFL game, things don't always go as planned. What we need to remember is that when we are going to go out into the world every day, we're going to face a world that has sin in it. And that sin is going to be hostile to our existence as those who live in Jesus Christ. And that hostility is going to find its way into your lives however it can. However the enemy can find an avenue or an open door, he will find his way in. If we don't spend our time preparing for those moments, practicing, knowing the playbook, creating habits in our lives for how we're going to deal with anger, hurt, frustration, and wrongdoing, By the time we get out there on Sunday, we might as well forget it. The enemy will take advantage of all of those things, and especially if we're not playing a team game. Peter is laying out five things for playing a team game in the church because it begins in here with how we deal with one another, how we practice this faith together. The first is unity of mind. 
And unity of mind means that we can't just say that it's nobody's business or it's only my business or we can just agree to disagree. That's a recipe for bitterness and divisions. Instead, it means that the church shares their thoughts together. We think together. Now, that doesn't mean we all think the same. Like in a marriage, you know that two different people don't think the same. And God uses that diversity of thought and personality in order to further and spread what we're learning as Christians by learning from each other. But unity of minds means at the end of the day, we're thinking like Jesus in the pursuit of hope. The second thing is sympathy. Hate and hurt, we said, are like cancers which have to be dealt with. Sympathy is more than just feeling sorry for someone. The word for sympathy in Greek literally means to be together in pain. It's describing what it is to share someone else's pain. That takes an extraordinary amount of effort and humility and the spirit for a church to be willing to share in pain together. Because by sharing in pain, Jesus shows us that's how healing begins. Thirdly, he says that we should have love like a family. Now, I don't know what the love in your families is like, and sometimes it can be not very loving. In fact, it can be very imperfect. But in our hearts, we know what love in a family is supposed to be. Families will argue, families will disagree, families will not be perfect, but at the end of the day, what keeps them coming back home, what keeps them seated around the dinner table, what keeps them sharing in their lives together? It's when all those problems come, we're ready to share in it together, to forgive, to apologize, not to ignore the differences but to do our best to resolve them and pray together. The fourth is a tender heart. A tender heart is a figurative expression for having a sense of a gut feeling for what something is going wrong, when something is going wrong. It's the word most often used of the feelings that Jesus experienced when he saw people suffering. It describes being moved within yourself. In the the pit of your stomach, you have a feeling for people that are suffering. And lastly, have a humble mind, which we'll talk more about later on. If you don't have a humble mind, then pride in you will never allow these things to take place. And even more so as a church, pride has to be defeated, broken, and destroyed by the Lord in order for humble thinking to grow. And Peter says this is not only something that happens once, but he quotes a proverb which says it has to be pursued relentlessly, like you're pursuing a goal in the same way you want to be competitive on the baseball field. This is saying pursue peace even more. And when somebody brings evil at you, like the life of Joseph being thrown in prison, suffering for two years, until finally Jesus delivered him, knowing that there's good to return in response. And so he welcomed them in, he fed them, and he blessed and forgave them after all the evil they had been through.
The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, but he will not listen to those who plot evil. The second part of our humble heart is dealing with hate and conflict against the church from the world. The world is fueled by discontent. Wherever you look, you see people discontent, people that are not at peace. If you want to reach somebody outside of the church, try talking about whether they have peace in their lives. There's a lot of discontentment and discord. And if you don't have God to fill those empty holes that are within you, there's a big gulf and vacuum that just sucks in the toxic fumes of sin or tries to escape it by short-lived gratitudes, addictions, and love of self. Just take a look at the political scene playing out in Georgia. I can imagine for anyone that lives in Georgia, the next three weeks are not going to be pleasant. And that's because the last seat in the Senate to decide whether the Republicans or Democrats are going to have the majority rests in a runoff in Georgia. Can you imagine what the ads are going to be like on TV for people living in Georgia? I remember watching TV a few weeks back, and one of my kids was talking about a commercial, and I noticed it too. It was a commercial ad for voting for some candidate. I don't remember who it was. But what I did notice was the commercial said nothing about the opponent. The commercial only highlighted the strengths and values of the candidate that they wanted you to vote for. Why did that stand out so much to me as strange? Let's read on in our verses, continuing at verse 13, where it says, What can they do if you are zealous for what is good? And then Peter says, Don't be afraid of them, don't be troubled, but do this. Verse 15, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy and always be ready to make a defense for anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. There's no better or more compelling witness to the power of the gospel than to see a Christian respond to suffering or evil with something good. We've got plenty of examples of the opposite. High-profile Christians, leaders, or celebrities who suffer not because they're doing good, but because they're doing evil. And those on the outside, non-Christians, are watching this and saying, well, why would I ever want to become a Christian? They're just as bad or worse than I am. But... How many non-Christians know you? How many of those who have seen all the bad examples see something in you and your life that's different? Peter is saying here to make space for Jesus. Because ultimately that witness is not you and it could never be you. And if you think it's you, it's just going to get ruined It's making space for Jesus in your heart. Peter says, be ready to give a defense 
by honoring Christ as holy in your heart. So picture this. The heart is the center of who you are. It's the center of your spiritual life, and from it out, outward flows all spiritual life and witness to the world. And in that heart is a cross. And on that cross is the suffering of Jesus Christ, the one who has gone through every hate, every reviling, every abuse, and endured it, including your own wrongdoing, in order to deliver you from the sin that's within you. And from that heart comes a cleansing, a holiness that comes out from Jesus, and it fills your heart, and it flows out into the rest of your body. Holiness is not something we can produce by ourselves. Instead, it says it comes from Jesus and God. Sanctify the Lord Jesus in your heart and outward flows that holiness. But as that holiness flows out of you and into the world to show that humble hope you have, you can expect resistance. You can expect that when people see that or they experience it, the strangeness of it that it is, something's awakened inside of themselves as well. And there's an evil that the devil sows against that holiness that's coming from Jesus Christ, which then attacks it. It tries to do whatever it can to undo it, upset it, undermine it, or corrupt it. So you finally say, well, what's the use? I might as well just join in in the hatred. And that's why Peter says, guard the whole thing with a bubble around you that's called hope. And hope is the living power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ all around you, that Jesus has risen from the dead. He's above every power in heaven and on earth, and he's guarding you. He's guarding that holiness. He's guarding what he's put into your heart, and you just need to rest in that hope that no matter how bad it might get, no matter how you might suffer, it's always going to work out good. Make space for Jesus. And maybe that space within yourself needs a little more work. Maybe that space is hard to get to, hard to find, hard to confront, because in that heart, there might be other things. There might be hurt, bitterness, a hardness of heart. There might be confusion about whether God really loves you, whether you can really be forgiven, whether you really should be at peace with yourself. You might think it sounds really good, Pastor, but it's not realistic. It's good for them around me, but me, I don't think I can get that sort of hope. That's where the word conscience comes in. And the picture that Peter uses is the picture of the flood. The word conscience in the Bible now is dealing with the conflict within. We've had the conflict in the church, the conflict from the world, but we have to deal with the conflict within ourselves, the battle going on. The word conscience in verse 21 refers to how you see yourself, how you see yourself in your own eyes, and how you see yourself through the eyes of people around you. What do you think of yourself? In English, it means to know yourself, but conscience in Greek means to see yourself. Your conscience doesn't get to decide who you are. 
Your conscience doesn't get to decide what the rules are to decide who you are and how good you are and whether you should be worth anything or not. Instead, the conscience in the Bible is simply a looking in the mirror. It is responding to what you're hearing and what you're seeing and what you're receiving to make the judgment. If you have a good conscience, it means you're seeing yourself as God wants you to be seen. If you have a bad conscience, it means you're not seeing yourself correctly. For instance, imagine you grew up with your parents telling you you are fat and ugly. No one tells you any different. What do you suppose the conscience of that child will see when they grow up and they look within themselves? Or imagine a friend laughs at you and tells you you're dumb because you don't know something that they know. What do you think your conscience will see when it looks within yourself? Are you fat? Are you ugly? Are you dumb? Are those even relevant to what you should be placing as the value marker for who you are? The conscience is trying to determine how you should see yourself. What is the mark of value that you have before God? And if you're fed with the voices from outside in the world, or even the hatred that might come up in your own homes or churches, and those lies rest on your conscience, then you'll never see yourself correctly. You have a bad conscience. And the only way to get a good conscience, it says, is to die. To die to what you once thought and to be born into something new. He says, for Christ suffered once for sins. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Well, the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as removing dirt from your body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. This text is describing Jesus proclaiming his victory over all evil to the evil spirits that inflicted lies and deception and sin on the people in the days of Noah. So in the days of Noah, the reason people went so far astray and drowned themselves in their own doing was because their conscience was utterly corrupted by the lives of of evil spirits. Spirits that fed these lies until they embraced them to the point of no return, and they drowned in the flood. But Peter is also saying Jesus has went into that flood, the flood, the place of drowning in death. The place where all sin brings us in the end, the grave. And Jesus went down into that death and that grave and that water to confront it. And he embraced it into himself to suffer and die. And then came out the third day, rising from the dead, to proclaim evil, death, sin 
has no more power over you. So when he comes from the grave and now preaches to you, it says, be at peace. He's entering into that place of your heart. Yes, to deal with sin, but also to deliver you from it. And that for you is like a death. It means that you have to die to what you once thought. The way you once reasoned out your own self-value or excuses for sin until finally you come back to life. And where that is symbolized is in the flood connected to baptism. The waters of baptism are like a death. They do not remove sin forever from us because we come out of baptism and guess what? We become a Christian and guess what? We still sin. But what they do is they provide us a place to go when we're confused and troubled about our minds and hearts. Because baptism is forever the place of prayer. Every time you go to pray, you're appealing to God, it says, for a good conscience. And that appeal in this verse means that you as a citizen of heaven have a right to call on Jesus for forgiveness. You have been given a right as God's own sons to appeal to God whenever you pray and say, Lord, if I'm wrong, show me and make it right. Cleanse me from evil works, deliver me from my own sins, and put on your garments of righteousness so we can live in confidence. That is how Peter says to silence the conflict within and to find the truth. You are baptismed out of the flood of debauchery and into the spirit. Which is why he finally says, people think you're so strange. This is the strange, humble hope of living quietly in the spirit that the world says, why don't you go along with us? Why aren't you doing the things that we're doing? What is the point to all of this stuff that you're doing? And with a clean conscience, you can say, because of Jesus. And nothing more and nothing less. If you want to learn more about Jesus, this is your chance for a two-minute monologue. Amen.